From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com, WISE dot com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I am Evan Ratliff. I'm joined by Max Linsky and Aaron Lamber, my co-hosts. Hey guys. Always a pleasure to talk to you both. Hello, Max. Hello, Evan. Hey guys. Evan, we got a uh, we got an exciting one. This is a uh, like breaking news episode. I love it. Yes, this episode is with Catherine Eban, who has been on the show before. Actually, early 2020, she was on the show. We talked about this book that she wrote about the pharmaceutical industry, Bottle of Lies, and about her career. But this time, it's the rare episode where we talked about one single magazine article that she has recently published at Vanity Fair, which is about the so-called lab leak hypothesis, which is the hypothesis that the origins of the novel coronavirus that causes COVID-19 actually originated from a lab rather than from natural origins. It has recently broken out in a huge way into the mainstream as a big topic. Her story is part of that. And uh, I am also, as you will find when you listen to this, obsessed with this question. I tried and failed to write about it myself. So we went pretty deep on it. And we talked both about how she reported it and how she feels about some of the media and political forces that swirl around this issue. I want to send a shout out to a previous episode of the Long Form Podcast. Uh, earlier in the pandemic, I talked to Nicholson Baker, who also had some thoughts about the possibility of this being a lab leak and uh, caught some flack for it. Uh, he wrote a, a story in New York Magazine. So anyway, uh, this is all to say... I am uh, excited that uh, these threads are converging and people are doing journalism about it. Indeed, indeed. Man, this is really like a one-two punch here. I wish every episode could both air get Aaron doing an I told you so and have Evan talking to someone <laughs> who accomplished a story that he himself failed to write. That's just like a, that's a, that's an incredible one too. Well, there'll, there'll be more in the series. We'll come up with more. Uh, we're brought to you, as always, by MailChimp. They make this show possible, and uh, we appreciate that. Thanks, MailChimp. Now here's Evan with Catherine Eban. Catherine, welcome back to the Longform Podcast. Thanks. It's great to be here. I am very excited to have you on. Uh, had you on for your 
book right after your book came out. Actually, it was a while after your book came out, but it was we talked a lot about um, Bottle of Lies. Um, and now you've got this story in Vanity Fair about the quote-unquote lab leak hypothesis. And I thought it was a fantastic story. And I also wanted, if you'll allow me a short preamble to this uh, interview, just as background, I've been completely obsessed with the lab leak hypothesis for going on a year. And I wanted to write a magazine story about it. I couldn't figure out a way in last summer, the first time I tried. Then I pitched again late last year to a big magazine. I couldn't get any traction. So I'll just say up front that I'm very jealous that you did this. Uh, that's what I'm coming in with. But also, when I saw it was you, I was very happy because I'm also relieved that I didn't get the chance to do it because you would have utterly scooped me uh, with what you got. So I was also grateful that it was you. And the other aspect is I've actually written about the zoonotic origins of viruses, viruses crossing over from animals into humans uh, in the past. So I've interviewed Peter Daszak, who features in this story a lot. Uh, and that was part of what spurred my interest in it. So that's all just to say that I probably have more thoughts on this than I would in a typical interview. But it's just background to talk about your reporting on this, which I thought was both sensational and also very finely tuned in how you wrote about it. So let's start with maybe you telling people who might not have paid close attention to what the lab leak theory actually is, sort of what it is and what it isn't. Okay. So there are wild conspiracy theories, first of all, around the lab leak hypothesis, which goes something like China engineered a biological weapon in a laboratory and released it on purpose. That is the most wild of the conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. I went in to look at the legitimate questions being asked by credible doubters as to what was the possibility that this may have come from one of the laboratories in Wuhan? Let me just say that, you know, when we talk about lab leak, that does not necessarily mean an intentional release. That could mean that this has a natural zoonotic origin, was brought back to a lab, and accidentally uh, was released from there. And when we say lab leak, that doesn't mean oozing from a pipe like, you know, a water hose. It means aerosol transmission, right. which is how this virus spreads. So lab leak could mean entirely accidental release of a natural, unengineered virus. Right. So there's sort of two aspects of the theory, the legitimate non-conspiratorial theory. It could be a virus that was brought to the lab, not manipulated in any way or only in very basic ways and then escaped. And then there is the theory that it was brought to the lab, research was done on the virus, right? so-called gain of function research. And maybe you should explain a little bit about that, that possibility. Sure. So, you know, just to back up, uh, one of the sort of fundamental questions at the heart of this story is how does a novel that coronavirus get to a central Chinese metropolis of 11 million people in the dead of winter uh, when most bats are hibernating. So in a city where there really aren't bats circulating in nature and this market, a seafood market where bats are not sold becomes the epicenter of an outbreak. So if you pan out a little bit from there, 280 meters away, you have 
the Chinese CDC, where they are doing coronavirus testing on bat samples. Uh, but seven miles away, you have the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And that is one of, that is China's lead coronavirus institution, um, where they're doing very aggressive research, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, uh, and the Wuhan Institute of Virology, known as the WIV, um, also houses one of the largest samples of viral bat strains in the world. So as you know, one of the experts I interviewed said, you know, the minute he heard about a novel bat coronavirus in Wuhan, he thought of the WIV because the kind of research they're doing, it's not 12 cities, it's three places in the entire world that does the kind of research that's going on there. It's, it's a type of research within virology where you uh, manipulate a pathogen to see if it can become more infectious and potentially infect human beings. So you're taking something that you collected from nature, you are doing performing manipulations on it to essentially in, enhance its infectiousness. Um, you know, the argument for doing this is you're gauging the risk. Uh, the argument against it is that you are creating a pathogen that doesn't necessarily exist in nature and run the risk of unleashing it. The arguments against it, I feel like this is important when we get into the questions of conspiracy theory, the arguments against it, those arguments were made well before this pandemic. There was a whole debate going on about whether or not this research was appropriate to be doing. It was being done, and then there were limits on it. There were all these sort of different regulations prior to this pandemic. Absolutely. So this is a kind of research that really has divided uh, the virology community for a decade. And there were a group of scientists who warned that this was too dangerous. They managed to sort of force the government, the Obama administration, to impose a moratorium on funding of gain-of-function research. So that was in 2014. At the very beginning of the Trump administration, that moratorium got lifted and replaced with a framework called P3CO, uh, which was to review any department or agency that was funding this kind of research needed to review it essentially by committee, uh, put guidelines, safety guidelines around it. Uh, you know, but the message that I got back from uh, people inside, sources inside NIH was that people were sort of rolling their eyes at it because, hey, gain-of-function research, that's kind of all of virology. So they just shrugged and nodded and went ahead and continued doing gain-of-function research. So let's talk, I want to get into your, your the actual reporting and writing of the story, but let's talk quickly about the mine aspect, just so that's set up for people who may not, people should read the story, but in case they don't. Yeah. So first, let's just talk about the mine, and then we could talk about how the mine came to light. So in 2012, this group of six miners in Yunnan province get this very unhappy assignment, which is to go and dig out this thick layer of bat feces from the floor of an abandoned mine shaft. Um, they go in, they do that, they become incredibly ill with symptoms that look like in 2012, COVID-19. They go to uh, a, an emergency room. They go to the hospital. Um, the hospital brings in pulmonologists. And of course, the hospital is alarmed because China 
was the epicenter of a SARS outbreak in 2002. Mm-hmm. So they they call in a um, a pulmonologist. He thinks it's a viral. He wants to know what kind of bat is involved. Rufus Chinese horseshoe bat, which is the same bat involved in the 2002 outbreak. The oldest of the miners dies first. Three of the miners end up dying. And this case kind of slipped underneath international headlines. But within China, that mine shaft became a destination for researchers who were trying to understand what the relationship was between SARS viral outbreaks and bats. And so the Wuhan Institute of Virology was one of the places that went to this mine shaft and collected samples and brought them back. Now, you know, as one of my sources put it, you know, this should have been banner headlines at the time. It wasn't. So fast forward to 2020, every scientist on planet Earth is trying to figure out what is the closest progenitor to SARS-CoV-2, which is what causes COVID-19. So there is this like international bat hunt, right? And the Chinese government samples 80,000 different wildlife specimens. So this group of independent researchers who go by the, the acronym DRASTIC, and they are spread all over the world. Some of them are top scientists. Some of them are just sort of, you know, unemployed science enthusiasts. And one of these fellows operates uh, under a pseudonym, the Seeker 268 on Twitter. Uh, he's actually uh, a, an ex-science teacher in Eastern India, right? <laughs> he becomes obsessed. So he starts going into this Chinese database. He speaks no Mandarin. He starts going into this Chinese database that houses all of these dissertations, right? And he plugs in, using Google Translate, he plugs in keywords into this database. And by doing this, he pulls up this unbelievable master's thesis from 2013 that details what happened in this hospital, the Kunming Hospital in Yunnan province where these miners were treated, which sort of lays bare these crazy findings from this mine shaft and raises all kinds of questions about what this researcher the lead coronavirus researcher at the Wuhan Institute of Virology knew or didn't know, claimed or didn't claim about this progenitor, potential progenitor virus they had called RATG13, which was dug up from that mine shaft. Uh, mm-hmm. So anyway, it's it's uh, the mine shaft is just this, you know, absolute kind of refracted funhouse mirror of crazy uh, of what went on there major questions yeah and i want to i want to return to that in a second as well as the the sort of loosely connected group of people who who uncovered a lot of that information but let's go back for a second and tell me at what point did this first appear sort of on your radar as a topic you were interested in covering you were writing about coronavirus for vanity fair since last april and covering testing vaccine rollout all of which is sort of a piece with reporting that you've done in the past connected to healthcare and pharmaceutical industry. So when did you first sort of get interested in this as a topic? You know, my editor and I were sort of just kicking around ideas and we were sort of saying, you know, some of my reporting for Vanity Fair has been 
stuff we set out to do, you know, like let's aim here. Some of the reporting has just been what I stumble onto or my sources tell me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but my editor was like, well, you know, one of these big unanswered questions at the heart of this is the origin of COVID-19. So I was like, right. When uh, was this? It was about two and a half months before we pubbed the story. Uh-huh. And I just dug in and it was weird because for the first time, you know, all of the reporting on COVID-19 has been very, very crowded. It's like there's tons of journalists, people fighting for the same sources, huge competition. But I got into the story and I was kind of like, it's not such a crowded space. So I was able to make more progress perhaps than I would have ordinarily as quickly as I did and just started piecing together this story. And I think one of my surprises was the extent to which everything was kind of opposite of what I would think it was. You know, every, I mean, I likened it on a Twitter thread I did about the story to an Escher drawing where it's like, you know, you go up a set of stairs and you think you've reached the top and then you turn again and it's like a totally different direction. So there was this Nicholson Baker story in New York Magazine. When you started looking to this, that story would have already come out. So did you look at that and sort of say, there's a lot of ground that's not covered here? As I started my reporting, what became very clear to me right away is there was a story that hadn't been done. Mm. That story was, what happened to the credible questions about a lab leak inside of the U.S. government. Mm -hmm. No one had done that story. And there was a whole world of legitimate questions that had been asked. What happened to those? And that's where I focused. Were you concerned? I mean, once something, especially these days, when something gets a sort of conspiracy label attached to it, it's it's very hard to shake. And even, even when in your description of the story, if a person came to it already thinking this is a conspiracy theory, you could sound to them like a QAnon person or, you know, that you're just sort of, and then there's this person, there's a mine. And then, you know, it sounds insane if you already are approaching it with that lens. Were you concerned that your story would sort of get caught up in that and wouldn't be able to break out of that? I was very concerned, you know, and, and so my approach, both in the reporting and writing, was to ensure that we stripped away those conspiracy theories and made a sharp distinction between the crazy town claims um, that were being made and the legitimate claims by people whose only agenda was to uncover the truth, not to somehow use, use a lab leak claim for a political purpose or a way to sort of cudgel China. And a, a big part of that are the documents that you got that sort of catalog some of this back and forth, as you say, inside the U.S. government, people who were either on one side trying to sort it out or on the other side sort of trying to shut down that investigation into it or saying that it was shoddy. So I'm first interested in, did you get those documents? You know, Obviously, we don't need to talk about sourcing in too much depth, but did you FOIA those or did you, it seemed too quick for you to FOIA them or did you get them from sources? Oh, no, no FOIAs on this story. I didn't have time. So all my documents were obtained without a single FOIA through sources. 
And was this a situation where when you got to your sources, they were reluctant to talk about it because it had been cast as a sort of conspiracy theory? Or that when you knocked on these doors, there were people sitting there saying, I've been waiting for someone to come ask me this? There was a sort of top-level patter about credible questions, but nobody had done an in-depth story. And I think there was definite concern from sources about going that deep. And it was sort of my reporting job to make a case for why it was in the interest, in the public interest to do this. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then Wise might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, Wise takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docu-series, Running Sucks. Is running the worst? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. <laughs> I hate it so freaking much. That you're a real runner now! I hate it. <laughs> I'm Abby Ayers, a 37-year-old mom from Utah who found herself running across the Manhattan Bridge in my first race ever. Running Sucks celebrates women who run and the running communities that carry them across the finish line. Running helped me in so many ways postpartum. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. For every person like you, I'm telling you you belong and I'm telling you you can do it. I never thought the words would leave my mouth, but yes, I'm planning on running a marathon. Like, who would have thought? Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course. And not to get into who these people are, because I know you have anonymous sources, but there's one particular fact in there that as a person who followed this for a long time was huge for me and I think huge for the story, which is the idea that there were three scientists from the WIV that fell ill in November of 2019, which had, there had been reporting, a little bit of reporting that maybe there were scientists who had fallen ill or just people from the Institute, but it wasn't clear who they were on staff 
how ill they'd been, et cetera. And the first place I've seen is in your story where you say you had three sources that tell you that there were three scientists who were involved in this gain of function research who fell very ill with, we don't know what, right. in November of 2019. Did that feel like a watershed moment for you when you learned that? Um, I'm not sure if that felt like as much of a watershed moment as the pushback that State Department officials got, and I was able to confirm through documentation regarding looking at this. You know, that to me was really the most surprising part of this is that there was, you know, genuine pushback in which they were sort of told not to open a Pandora's box. And that somehow this gain of function bureaucracy within the federal government had precluded an aggressive inquiry into the lab leak hypothesis. And not an inquiry from crazy people, an inquiry from government officials. Let's just return to that fact, you know, the fact of three scientists falling ill, and you've got three sources, again, without going to who they are, who are confirming for you that that information was classified information the U.S. government had gathered. Mm -hmm. How do you sort of try and establish that they are, in fact, in some way, independent sources that are confirming this information as opposed to a sort of group of people who have teamed up to feed you mm -hmm. similar information. I mean, it's like the w, Iraq WMD question is the one that always arises in people's minds around this type of anonymous sourcing. Are there people in there who have an agenda that are trying to give it to you wholesale through three different people that makes it look confirmatory? Right. So, you know, first of all, obviously, you're always interviewing people separately, and you're doing very, very comprehensive interviews. So, You've got a big, big fact pattern. And, and part of it is not just making sure that, um, you know, are there elements of the story, whether about that fact or anything else that are, you know, that are very, that are at odds, you know, and then you have independent sources that you know are independent, that you can then take that information to and kick the tires. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's very important. But the other thing that is very important in all of this is contemporaneous documentation, documentation, which confirms that that's what they thought at the time. That's what happened at the time. And that's always critical. Some of those email back and forth, I was just sort of imagining you having those in hand and then going to some of the people for for comment. Do you tell them up front? look, I have these emails and I would like you to comment on them? Or do you try to get them to comment and see what they'll say without knowing that you actually have the emails? Yeah, no, I don't necessarily. I mean, the thing is, I am obligated as a journalist to ask them about everything that is in the document that I'm going to flag, you know, but it's tricky because you have to protect sources, right? So you have to be very careful when you go for comment that you're still protecting a source from whom you got a document. Mm -hmm. That can be a little bit of a tricky tightrope to walk. It seemed like you had information on internal discussions that would be hard for them to push back against. Did you find that people were very open when you got to them about how this debate had played out or that you actually had to sort of force it out of them? 
I, w- I wouldn't quite say open, um, but, you know, for example, the State Department panel that had not been reported on in any depth. And this was a, mm-hmm. a sort of a confidential State Department panel where they pulled in scientists to red team the lab leak hypothesis, which is, you know, sort of pummel it and see if it still stands. So I was able to get the meeting minutes, which actually surprised a lot of the participants. Um, You know, so when I called them and asked them, I asked them, you know, my understanding is you said X, would you like to comment on that? And they were pretty surprised that I was coming to them with those questions. Now, we made a bunch of documents public. Yeah, we could only make the documents public that I had permission from sources to post. Uh-huh. Um, that wasn't one of them, but we do say in the story that we obtained the meeting minutes. Did you get those documents early enough on in your reporting that you felt you were sort of reporting from a place of strength? Um, yes and no. Some of them I had for a while. Some of them came in in the final days before we closed the story. Oh wow! Yeah. At what point did you decide that you had enough? Oh, I definitely didn't. I never have enough. I'm re-reporting my story now. Why stop? You kidding? Who who made you stop, I guess, is the better question. My editor made me stop. I'm going to blame him. Well, you alluded earlier to this sort of group of scientists, non-scientists, call them amateur sleuths in some cases, who had been investigating this. And to Again, like people who have been following this obsessively, the names are very familiar, you know, like Alina Chan from the Broad Institute, like I've been following her for months and months. And what role did they play for you in, and they play a role in the story that you write, but in sort of understanding this and, and pursuing it? Like, when did you decide to sort of include that aspect in the story? So I spoke with a number uh, of those, you know, amateur sleuths, and some of them are very accomplished scientists, of course. Mm-hmm. And I think talking to them oriented me towards the legitimate questions, because these were people who were staring into this fact pattern and doing the kind of research that, you know, investigative journalists do. Now, maybe not calling up people and interviewing them, you know, but they were digging into the fact pattern. Um, And so they had, you know, they were pointing me towards things that were good questions. So I think that helped shape how I approached my reporting. Again, I feel like there's sort of risks in all different aspects of this story. And one of them is, you know, you get a lot of scientists who say, uh, who have just maybe decided, concluded that the natural origin is the most likely scenario, and they will dismiss these types of people as being either amateurs or working outside their field. They don't know enough about this field uh, to actually be engaging with this stuff. And I'm wondering how you thought about that in, in reference to sort of how you were using them in the story. Yeah, I mean, that's a very legitimate concern, but I think the point to make here is They were pointing me in certain directions, but that wasn't in any way sufficient for a story to me. Um, What began to really matter is that when I started reporting on what had happened inside the U.S. government, lo and behold, you know, you had a whole set of investigators there who were looking at their own, had their own sets of questions. And in some cases, the questions overlapped. 
so that to me became a lot more interesting and powerful to really try to drill down on what are the legitimate questions to be asked. Now, you know, let me just say, none of this means that it came from a lab. Right. Which we're really clear about in the story. It could have come, you know, from a bat to a civet into the market. We don't know. But to me, what I became fascinated by is the question of why these questions couldn't be asked. Mm -hmm. What stopped them from being asked? You have an answer to that question, you know, in the story related to to the government investigation. So first, let's talk about that. What What do you think the fundamental reason is that these questions were were sort of shut down? I would put it into sort of three sets of reasons. Um, the first reason is that you had a lot of U.S. government investment in gain-of-function research, and some of that investment was in the Wuhan Institute of Virology itself through this intermediary organization, EcoHealth Alliance. And I do think that this gain-of-function bureaucracy had led people to sort of say, don't look here, don't dig here. So that's one of them. I think part of the reason is because Trump came out in April on the basis of what I think is not that much information, actually, and floated this hypothesis. So that created what Matt Pottinger described to me as an antibody response within the government, because nobody wanted to relive the stovepipe intelligence about WMDs in Iraq. So it was like, whoa, wait a second, we can't say this. So if you were not going to say it, then it was like, we can't even look at it. Mm -hmm. And I think the third bucket of it is like, if it turns out to be a lab leak, like if this really happens, that is so problematic on so many levels, politically, diplomatically, scientifically, you know, it's a lot more um, neutral if, okay, you know, this thing came out of nature. So, you know, do we have a nature problem or do we have a science problem? Well, that was, I mean, that's to me just one of the most extraordinary things about this story is that you mentioned the Eco Health Alliance. So that's this organization that I had interviewed the head of Peter Tazek years and years ago about how they were searching the world for viruses trying to find which viruses would cross over, maybe even being able to predict which viruses could cross over. And it's big and important research. And then this sort of gain of function type research got kind of folded into it. And then when this pandemic happened, the person who everyone seemed to turn to, to ask the question, where did this come from, was Peter Daszak, whose his entire career is on the line. I mean, there's no way you could say anything otherwise. And He's on the WHO investigation. He's on the original Lancet article where they say it's natural origin, you know, don't worry about it. And that that always shocked me. And I'm not sure I have a question in here, except that did you try to get an interview with him? And did you try to understand how that came about? Well, I absolutely tried to find out how it came about. And um, he declined to comment. EcoHealth Alliance through a spokesperson declined to comment. You know, my job is to be able to reflect all sides of this. And 
I think his side of it, which he's made clear, is that these global collaborations are critical to being able to, you know, monitor the world for these threats. But on the other hand, I interviewed people who look at his model, which is going to the remotest places, pulling these potentially perilous bat samples, bringing them back to these crowded metropolises, analyzing them and potentially manipulating them through this research. Uh, as one you know, critic of his likened it to looking for a gas leak with a lighted match. Within that, within the manipulation, there are also these sort of purely scientific questions in there. And you kind of chose, I felt like, not to go too deep into those. Like you reference, there's all these things like fur and cleavage sites and things that come up around manipulation, which some scientists will say show that it definitely could not have been manipulated in the lab because we would have manipulated more effectively. That's one of the arguments. And on the other side there, people say it definitely shows it was manipulated because there's particular sites. And I'm interested in the choice to sort of reference that, but not try to go deep on it. I feel like if, I, if I'm going to write more on this, I'd like to go get a, you know, virology master's degree, uh, which I don't have. I have a master's degree in 17th century epic poetry, which helped me <laughs> not at all doing this story. The science is so incredibly complicated that I really didn't think that I could bring the most value added to this story going down the furin cleavage site rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. That has been done by some other writers. And Nick Wade, former New York Times reporter, did a big medium post and he detailed that. Uh, so I thought that my contribution to this story was going to be uh, slightly sideways of that. You've talked about why you, you thought this investigation got tamped down within the government, but why do you think you found it to be an open space when you went to report it? You know, from a media perspective, why do you think that it was treated the way it was? I think partially because of all the conspiracy theories. People didn't want to go there and they didn't want to feed the beast. And I understand that, you know, I mean, I definitely get that, but that didn't mean there wasn't a story there once you could peel away all of that. And I, I will say this, which is having reported on this pandemic for a year, almost every single thing I learned doing this reporting was news to me. Hmm. Like it, it's like this, this alternate universe, you know? Yeah. Well, particularly I would think because it seems like one of the issues here is that because Trump said something about this theory vaguely, incorrectly, that it became a bit untouchable. But it, it's you seem like you came from the other side, like you were doing plenty of reporting on uh, the failures of pandemic response. And now to find something that is sort of on the other side, not exactly on the other side, but that requires a different frame. Did you have to readjust your own thinking to get into it? I don't know that I had to adjust my own thinking because I'd, I'd like to believe that I come to every story with a kind of neutral head. But it's like, you know, walking into a furniture storeroom and you've got to move these giant sofas in order to be able to proceed an inch. I thought about it as moving furniture. I had to move aside these giant conspiracy theories in order to just clearly report. Did it concern you at all? 
that there are people to this day who will say that the lab leak hypothesis is racist, that it is born of racist origins, which for some people, including possibly Trump, it was. So how did that factor into your thinking about the story or did it? It absolutely concerned us. And, you know, I think we made, tried to make very clear in the story that there had been, you know, an appalling wave of anti-Asian hate crimes in this country, in part due to Trump's claims about the origin of this virus. So, you know, what we tried to do is put up in bright neon lights what the conspiracy theories were. We're setting those aside to do this reporting and simply looking at the question of the origin through the prism of a sort of what can be credibly asked. Part of the issue is just that the far right media has obviously taken this up as a cause. It's seen as kind of validating of Trump. It's seen as credibility shattering for the traditional media that that this was ignored or shot down. It sort of fits in with a lot of, you know, anti-cancel culture, vaguely right. described ideas. And two questions about that. First, did that make the reporting for you in any way more challenging that the people who are involved in the investigation sort of know how this plays in the broader media ecosystem? You know, what surprised me is that almost nobody I interviewed seemed aware of the meta, well, not aware, but they were not concerned with this meta media narrative, but they were just embroiled in these sort of basic questions about these sort of fact pattern around the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Yeah. You know, the people who dug into this question were in a way sort of refreshingly naive to that. And so I just stick with them, try to just walk it through. And the second part of that is, does it concern you at all the extent to which, so now that the story is out, the loudest voices sort of taking it up in some cases are speaking from those quarters, speaking from the Trump justifying quarters, or you know they have a narrative that they want to weave into mm-hmm. the reporting that you've done. Obviously, that shouldn't change your reporting, but I'm interested in how it feels to kind of get caught up in that stream. It absolutely does concern me. And so at any point that I've seen anybody sort of misstating or misappropriating what is in this article inaccurately, I have responded on Twitter. There are all kinds of claims that I am not making in this story. Those finer points are being missed in the public square. Mm -hmm. So at any point that I need to step in and clarify what is in this story and what is not in this story, I will do that. To what extent do you view the story as an argument for taking the lab leak hypothesis seriously versus, to some extent an argument for the evidence of the lab leak hypothesis, if that makes sense. I think the story is really about taking the lab leak hypothesis seriously. It's about the people who tried to do that. It's about the questions that they asked. And it's about how those questions were received. My story is not an argument for the lab leak hypothesis. Uh, But of course, you will be asked, including by me right now, uh, (laughs) whether if you had to be pinned down on 
picking one hypothesis or thinking about the balance of evidence, given what you know and what you've reported, what you what you currently think about it? I have absolutely no idea. And like everyone, I will be extremely curious to see what the Biden administration sort of comes to through Biden's direction to the intelligence community to give him a report within 90 days. What's very interesting to me and should be you know, made clear here on this podcast, the Biden administration did not walk back the State Department fact sheet that was put together under Pompeo, mm-hmm. which sort of laid out these questions around the Wuhan Institute of Virology. You know, what the Biden administration has said is that there are dueling hypotheses and we plan to drill down on this and we're going to see what we come up with in 90 days. But, you know, if in 90 days uh, they say, you know, we think it's zoonotic, well, I'll be interested in that. But, I, you know, at this point, nothing would surprise me. Yeah. You know, but I think, let me just add one other observation. Every single one of these, what I call them the credible doubters, they were all motivated to dig into this for one reason, which is that they didn't understand why the scientific community was being so unscientific in approaching this, right? Why would you have people making claims that it definitely was natural origin? barely before we even know anything about it. So that irked them. They were like, wait a second, how do they know that? Yeah, the first sort of shooting down of any lab leak possibility happened in March, March of 2020. Yeah, yeah. But the flip side of that is, and you address this towards the end, and this really stymied me when I was trying to get into reporting on it, was there seems to be a large possibility that we'll never know. Just because, as you also detail, there's no question that the Chinese government has stonewalled information, no matter what the origin is, and that information about the lab is either not obtainable or has never been obtainable, but you can't get to it anyway. You can't send forensic investigators in. They won't let you do it. They didn't let the WHO do it. And so where did you sort of land on thinking about this is an ongoing story that you will stay on and that the answer could actually truly surface? You know, I mean, some of the most knowledgeable people do think the truth will come out at some point. Either the, you know, host animal will be identified. Right. Or, you know, under kind of the weight of evidence and international pressure, China would, if it is a lab leak, cop to it in some fashion. The people who have become obsessed with trying to answer it are never going to stop until the answer is no. And maybe I will be included among their ranks. How do you feel about being included in that group? Because it's also noted in this story, you know, scientists that have spoken up on one side or the other, on either side, on either question, have gotten death threats. This is obviously an incredibly charged question. And the biggest governments in the world have an interest in it. Their intelligence apparatus has an interest in it. And you are reporting from your home here on on this question. So how do you feel about sort of being caught up in that? And have you sort of felt the effects of the story coming out? Yeah. You know, at this point, my Twitter feed is an absolute gulag of 
crazy assertions and I'm being attacked from both the left and the right which on the one hand makes me, you know, a little uncomfortable, but on the other hand makes me think I did my job. And do any of the attacks ever get to you or or concern you? They concern me to the extent that people are making claims based on stuff that's not in my article. Mm -hmm. That bothers me for sure. And I push back on those. But, you know, you don't want to be in an endless whack-a-mole on Twitter because you can't get anything done. (laughs) You know, I'm always most comfortable when I just put my head down and report. When I do that, it doesn't matter. You know, I'll just, that's what I do is just focus on the facts and I will go back to doing that. Should we expect to read more reporting from you on this? I'd hope so. If I come up with anything for sure. All right. The last thing I wanted to ask was just in terms of the importance of this story, you know, you'll even get people who sort of say, this is not even important right now. That's not nearly as important as just dealing with the pandemic now as it's still ongoing. And what is your sort of top level view of why it's important to to try to get at this question? So look, there is a reason why the FAA does a comprehensive investigation anytime there is a safety lapse on an airplane. They do it because you have to learn from those problems, right? You can't make a correction unless you know why something happened. So imagine if this is a lab leak, the earth shattering consequences for virology, for the science community, for how research is done, for how research is regulated. I mean, we have to know that. Or if it is a zoonotic origin, uh, we have to know how our incursion, human incursion into wild spaces could be unleashing these viruses because, you know, COVID-19 is one thing, but, you know, we're going to be looking at, you know, COVID-25 and COVID-34. I mean, we have to know what caused this. Well, Catherine, thank you for your reporting. Uh, Even though I regret that I failed to report on it myself, I'm extremely glad that you did. I loved the story. I thought it was a very important story and I appreciate you coming on. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for this week's long form podcast. Thank you to Catherine Eban for coming on. Her story is out in Vanity Fair. It's called The Lab Leak Theory, Inside the Fight to Uncover COVID-19's Origins. Go read it now because there will undoubtedly be new information coming out on one side or the other of this issue for the weeks and months and years to come. And if you read that story, it'll be great background for you to follow the ins and outs. Our editor this week is Jackie Sajiko. Thank you, Jackie, as well as our intern, Susan Peterson. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer, and to our sponsor, MailChimp. I'm Evan Ratliff. We really appreciate you listening, and we'll see you next week. Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Socks brought to you by Teen Milk, 
Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.